Um, on the first sermon that was ever preached in the book of Acts, Brother uh, Aaron, could you uh, help me and hit that button one more time? You are blessed with a little more height than I am. Uh, the red button would be fabulous. I think, or maybe the inner. Thank you, sir. I'm not sure what it means to spend two weeks on the first sermon that was ever preached. Might mean I'm given to long-windedness. I apologize for that. Um, How many of you are glad to be Pentecostal? You know, um, when we look at this world around us, um, we, we have a hope, um, an anchor for the soul, the Bible calls it. It's something that is past our brain, past even our own uh, circumstances. We have a blessed assurance in which uh, uh, we can face life and problems and setbacks. And uh, I remember Brother Mooney talking at one point in the in the service, and he said, uh, you know, when, when you reach a point where problems come against you in life, it, it, it bumps into something else in your spirit. It hits faith. And uh, so pain and set, setback and heartache can only go so far in our lives. And yet in the lives of people that are without the baptism of the Spirit, they don't have that assurance. They don't have the, uh, the promise that God is working all things for good in their lives. So I'm glad, uh, I'm glad I'm Pentecostal this morning. I'm glad I'm baptized with the Spirit. Um, we were talking last week, I believe we got to the uh, Acts 2, uh, 23, to just back up a little bit. Uh, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken him by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. And we talked about how that the Lamb was slain from the foundations of the world. What did that mean for God to be released to create? Um, by saying, I will never sacrifice my, my holiness for, my, for love. I will never jeopardize my justice because of my love. But I will operate in a way in which, uh, through integrity, I can make you part of the kingdom of God and yet never violate who I am as a holy and just God. Okay? So I'm going to jump in this morning. Uh, I apologize that the donuts are not here. They are on their way, though. So when they come in... Uh, we'll take a little pause, and I'm sure Kevin will know how to do that with the audio back there. And you can grab some donuts when they come in. All right? Acts 2.24, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. All right? The apostle is writing here uh, about the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Death, hell, and the grave were the enemies that we could never defeat on our own. But uh, Christ came as a man and defeated the enemy on his turf. So he couldn't decree salvation from heaven. He had to come legally into the world and fight as a human being. The psalm says the heaven of heavens are the Lord's, but the earth has he committed into the hands of the children of men. I believe I talked about it here one time, that, uh, that wonderful little Christmas story we tell. Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joys, the angel says. Well, what are the glad tidings of great joys? For unto you is born this day a Savior. God legally stepped into the arena or the battlefield as it was and took on the enemies of flesh 
death, hell, and the grave. On their turf, as a human being, not as deity, but legally, he steps into a human body to fight the enemies we could not fight ourselves. I wish I had time to go into kinsman, redeemer, and all sorts of other stuff, but there, I have lots of times to teach to you, so we'll talk about that maybe at a, a later time. But Acts 2.25 says, For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. All right, so what is the right hand again? We've said it tons of time in here, but repetition is the mother of learning. So let me just say it again. Right hand is a metaphor for the place of power and prominence. So was this person at God, not, it's not at God's right hand, right? David said, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, David's right hand. He is the place of power in David's life. He's the way that David is going to be blessed. Right? So that proves that, you know, right hand is a metaphor. Because I don't think anyone would argue that the eternal son is up in heaven at the right hand of David. Maybe David's got a father. No, I'm talking about David. Right? So what is he talking about? 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says this, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Uh, let me throw the language at you again. I apologize for this. Risen is perfect passive, passive indicative in the Greek. What does that mean? Just means past action that has ongoing effects. Something that happened in the past that still has effects now. So Christ is risen an action that happened in the past, but it has implications for the present. So you just can't say he rose from the dead. Is this distracting you? Distracting me. All right. So Christ is risen from the dead. What does that mean? That means that when he rose in the past, it's not just like it's some historical fact, but it has implications for the present. That's what the Greek means. So you not only can know that Christ rose from the dead, then you can experience the risen Christ right now today. That's how David says he can move at the right hand because in his resurrection, he stepped into a place of power. All right, and we're going to get to what that place of power is. How did Jesus as a man uh, become sit at a place of power at the right hand of God? We'll look at that uh, just in a little bit, okay? Try to... Call myself down. Therefore did my heart rejoice, David says. My tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. David's flesh shall rest in hope because thou will not leave my soul in hell. Now that's David. He said, you're not going to leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. All right. So who is he talking to? He's making a prophecy here of some future person that's never going to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Right? So I, I wish I had time to go in. Brother Money's in my uh, Pentateuch class and Brother Dan is in my Pentateuch class. We could talk about what it means to be in the presence of God before the face of God where covenant happens. This man is going to enact covenant in a very uh, specific way that will bring joy. You're going to be in the presence of God in a very specific way. I apologize for that side note. So what is David speaking of? The hope of the resurrection. Because the Lord is at his right hand, David doesn't fear death, but has hope of a resurrection. All right? 
Now, we just uh, talked about um, the, while, last week and prayed for Tim O'Neill's family, uh, his uh, passing, uh, great young man, um, struggled for a long time. And I'm going to tell you, if it wasn't for the hope of the resurrection, Paul says, uh, you know, we don't suffer as other people suffer. We don't suffer as those that have no hope. And when we face death and crisis, we can, we can rest in something. What can we rest in? The same thing that David was saying. We don't have to fear death. It's not the march into the abyss. Uh, there's an atheist, uh, Carl Sagan, who said, we must choose to face the absurdity of the human situation and its utter meaninglessness. Let me say that again. We must choose to face the absurdity of the human situation and its utter meaninglessness. He also said, life is a form of despair from which there is no escape. I don't know about you folks, but that doesn't sound like a good philosophy of life to me. But, you know, it was uh, Frederick Nietzsche who said that if there is no God, there is no meaning to life. He's the first, first atheist to really live out the implications of his belief. But we don't have to live life without meaning. We don't have to fear death. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And that historical facts points to the fact that he was the first fruits of the resurrection. And because he rose, if we're hidden in him, we will rise as well. So on that day, Tim and they said goodbye to him in this life. And we sorrow and we weep because we are separated from them in this life. And we should. We should make room for... Uh, people that are, are sorrow, missing their loved ones. But at the same time, we will see Tim again when we step into glory. His mother and father and his sister can rest in hope and have a security that other people don't have. It's not meaningless. Life is not meaningless. It's rested in a hope, an anchor for the soul, built on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Praise God. We're not hopeless. We don't have to be overcome by grief or, or the separation of death. But death is just the separation of the, of the soul from the body. And, and we know that it's just a transition into another life. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. At His uh, right hand are pleasures forevermore. At that place of power, He's made a place for us. A provision and help for the future that even death cannot destroy. That's what Jesus did when He rose from His, his death. His work, his, his work, his death, and his resurrection provided that place of eternal life for us. Okay? So what, what Peter is saying is Christ will not suffer the effects of death on his body. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not suffer as those that have no hope. But Philippians 3.21 says that we will have a body like unto his glorious body. Wouldn't it be great one day to not have any sickness or pain or no sorrows. and You know, people seek for all sorts of things in this life. Financial security, nice home, friends that really care about you, uh, enjoy one another's company, and whatever that works out. What do you think heaven's going to be? It's not like, you know, it's going to be some humdrum thing. It's going to be uh, security. It's going to be happiness. It's going to be with the people that love us the most. God has prepared a place for us. That's the hope of the Christian. We don't, we're not just marching through life. We're going somewhere. And God's given us a place to go. Aren't you glad that we're going someplace? And that this is just a dressing room for eternity. We had hope only in this life. You know, I love being married to my wonderful wife. She spoils me. She's not here. 
They don't tell her she spoils me. Uh, but she spoils me. Uh, I have a great son. I have a great life. But you know what? Uh, there are days when, you know, you, you just struggle with life and the pressures and finances and, you know, setbacks and all the heartaches of life, the stuff of this fallen world. One day, one day that's all going to be gone uh, because of what Christ did, right? Acts uh, 2.29, I have to hurry here. Men and brethren, let me speak, uh, speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. So what is Peter doing? He's correcting a bad theology. He's saying, David cannot be speaking of himself. You're thinking he's talking about himself, that he's not going to be the one to see corruption. Your hope was in the Davidic monarchy. All right? He says, but he's not speaking of him, uh, himself as the Holy One, who will not see corruption. Why? Because he says, you can go down and you can find the place where David lays right now. So who is David talking about then, Peter? He's talking to these Jewish people. He says he's talking about the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah, who will never see corruption or death. What is Peter telling them? If Jesus rose from the dead, he's the Messiah. God vindicated him. Remember we talked about last week, the mighty, God vindicated him through mighty acts. If he is risen from the dead, he is your Messiah. David prophesied of him. Folks, if, if Jesus was not who he said he was, then God would not have allowed him to be risen from the dead. He allows all sorts of other things to happen. But a, a supernatural event would not have occurred if God is the controller of life and death. But because Jesus rose from the dead, it vindicated who he was to his people. Uh, C.S. Lewis offers this argument. It's called the trilemma. He was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Right? So uh, he was either a lunatic, a crazy man, who uh, he says was on terms of, uh, would be equal to calling him a, a poached egg. All right, so he's uh, nuts. He just thought he was the Messiah. He thought he was uh, a miracle worker. He thought all of these things. So he's a, a, a lunatic. You could call him crazy. You could say he was a liar, that he was manipulative, that he was working things, and maybe they lied about it, and, and he really wasn't who he said he was. He said, or he is Lord. He said, but you cannot call him just another good teacher. He did not leave that open to us. He is either who he said he was as Messiah, Christ, Lord, and God, or he is something else. You can, you can blaspheme him as a, as a devil. You can call him a liar. You can call him crazy. But you cannot call him anything else. You cannot call him a good teacher. And this world, the postmodernism that wants to accept all of these teachers, and, and even Islam will say, oh, yes, Jesus was a, a prophet. He was a good prophet. That's not, he didn't leave that open. He didn't intend to leave that open to us. He is Lord in Christ. Or you have to say, he's either crazy or a devil. Right? Acts 2, 30 and 31. Therefore, being a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him, to David, that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. That tiresome reading in Matthew and, or in the Gospels where it describes the lineage of Jesus. Why was that so important? Because he made a promise to David that someone is going to sit on your throne forever and rule. What did that mean? That means Jesus had to be who? The son of David. And this is exactly what he's pointing out. 
He's seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So he's pointing to the work of Christ as the Holy One. This is what uh, scholars will call um, uh, David's greater son. It pointed to the messianic king of Israel who would rule as the Old Testament prophesied. Did you know that even under the, uh, the apex, the, the greatest point of the Solomonic and the uh, Davidic monarchy of uh, Israel, under the heydays when they had conquered the most uh, land and everything under the, uh, David and Solomon, did they ever realize all the land that God promised them? Did they ever conquer the boundary? No. I was in a, uh, teaching a group of teenagers uh, uh, at a church, and, and I, I got to this point, and I said, you know, they never conquered the land that God promised them. Did God lie? And I just watched these faces. Finally, one of them, Tara, she's a sweet gal, she's like, yeah, I guess he did. Like, no, no, no. Bad rhetorical strategy on, her, you know, on the part of the teacher. I was just trying to get them to a crisis moment to buy in. But they never, they never really uh, reached the potential that they were promised under those empires. The only time that they're going to release, uh, reach it is when Jesus come back, comes back and sits on the throne of David in the millennial reign. He's the real son. He said David was just a picture of something else. And David saw the far off and prophesied of the Messiah that was going to come. And he's really going to rule. He's not just going to be the king of Israel. He's going to be the king of kings. He's not just going to be the Lord of the Jews. He's going to be the Lord of the lords. He's going to be elevated to a place as a man that no human king or lord has ever been elevated to. And that's what David saw far off. All right. So he uh, came from the lineage of David. I mean, how many have read the triumphal entry, you know, the, where he comes into Jerusalem and they're putting palm branches out? They, they missed his coming. They were doing like they did in the Maccabean revolt uh, when the, um, the Maccabean kings right before the time of Jesus came and overthrew the Roman oppression. And, uh, or the, uh, yes, and uh, why am I going down this road? Well, I will just tell you this. They're saying he's pointing to this. We want him to be a king like the kings from the, uh, from the Maccabean period. And we see him as that. And they're casting down these things. and they, they lead him in on this triumphal entry. All of that symbology, if you do a study on it, you can see they're wanting him to be king. But he's saying, I'm going to be king, but not like you think I'm going to. I'm not going to throw over kingdoms with the sword and the spear. I'm going to throw over kingdoms with the power of the Spirit through love and, and, and peace and gentleness and all of these things. I'm going to change the hearts of people in such a way that it's going to bring Rome to its knees. That's the power that Jesus came to bring. That's how he conquered. We are in the Basileia Tuteu, the kingdom of God. We are soldiers of Christ, but we don't fight flesh and blood. We fight a different way. That's why uh, you can't be too invested in some things. I, I, I believe we should be active in our uh, shaping our government and everything like that, but we don't trust in that, do we? We trust in changing the hearts of people. If you get the hearts of people changed, folks, guess what? If Rome fell, if enough people get baptized with the Spirit, they're going to change their lives, and we can change America simply by getting people filled with the Spirit. Amen. They'll vote like they should vote. Okay, that's off the other topic. I apologize for that. All right, Acts 2.32. 
This Jesus hath God raised up. This man, he's being very specific because there was lots of Jesus, uh, people named Jesus in that time. He says, this Jesus hath God raised up. This man is the person you need to pay attention to. This man, the one that you think is uh, crucified like a criminal, is the one that you need to pay attention to, right? This Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. We, are, uh, we all are witnesses. Okay, so there were lots of be- Jesuses in that time. But Jesus means, Yeshua means Yahweh saves. It's the same name of God in the Old Testament. And what it means is, is this man has become the salvation of the Lord. What he has done has acted out God's agenda, salvation. He has become our salvation. All right? So what does it look like? This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Acts 2.33. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Being in this place of high priest, being in this place of sacrifice, that no other man could be because they sinned, and he did not sin. And not only did he not sin, he stooped to the role of a servant, lower than he had to because he didn't have to die from his own sins, but stepped into the place to die for our sins, atonement. Jesus, this man, has been exalted to this place of mediator, to this place of high priest, and have received of the Father the promise. You know why you're blessed today? Because of the work of the man, Jesus Christ. You know why we have the baptism of the Spirit today? Because of the work that God did as a man. He stooped low and opened the portals of glory. He received, this man received the promise of the Father, or the promise of the Holy Ghost, and he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. So the promised blessing was given. How? It was given through the man Jesus to those at Pentecost. The whole New Testament, let me say this again. I know I've bantered this around lots down here, but let me say it again. I'll try not to go nuts. The whole New Testament uh, revels in the language of the Son. This is where we need to really, really get familiar with what Scripture says and be able to talk about father-son language and not trip, but say, this is what God did as man. The Holy Ghost was poured out from heaven through the window of the sacrifice. The blessing and promise of God was released because His holiness and justice was satisfied. He said, this is what you see here on the day of Pentecost. So it is, in fact, because of what Jesus did at Calvary that we have the blessing of Pentecost. Now, let's look at that a little bit. The phrase in that verse that says, see and hear, describes salvation. All right? So if some say, uh, I don't know when I was saved or when I was filled with the Spirit, then guess what, folks? Probably they haven't experienced it. The Bible says that When you see and hear this, that's what the experience of salvation is shown to be. All right? So what does that mean? That means salvation is is not a creeping process. Well, I'm not sure when I actually was saved. I've been living for God a long time, and, and then all of a sudden I just knew. No, 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 no. 
I think you you need to get back, open up to Acts chapter 2, and it describes an observable thing that you can see. It it describes something that you can hear when you become saved, all right? So that is, uh, all due respect to uh, my wonderful uh, friend, Baptist friend, who makes this argument, you know, that you can come to an assurity of salvation in a process. That's not how the Bible describes what salvation is. You're going to see and hear that you've been saved. I won't go too far down that road. Acts 2, 34 and 35. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself. So David's not at this position of uh, power. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. What is he quoting? All right, we've talked about this before, the passages of identity, where Jesus says he is the God of the Old Testament. Have tons of stuff there that... Clearly, I and my Father are one, all of these things, right? But what is he quoting? He's quoting Psalm 110.1, which is a passage of distinction. He's pointing to what Jesus as a man was commissioned to do. How many are tracking with me so far? All right, so it's not about what he did as deity. This is a passage of distinction where he's going to say, this is where I'm going to show you what I did as a man. This is what Jesus, as a human being, was commissioned to do. His work as uh, the perfect man. Right? Got it? Yes. Okay. So the Son is at the right hand. In Revelation 5, 6, how many thrones are there? There's one throne. And if you look at the uh, mediatorial aspect of the man Jesus, it's represented as what? A slain lamb with seven eyes and seven horns walking up. It calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's a slain lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. So it's not being literal. It's speaking of the metaphor again about the one on the throne and what Jesus did as a man who was worthy to open the seals. He opened salvation, the window in which uh, the blessing of Pentecost could be poured out. So he's pointing again to, look, if you understand who the Holy One is, you're going to see that Jesus, the Messiah, affords us this experience that you see in here. So again, the right hand is a place of power, and it speaks of his operation as priest. It's the same language in Exodus 15, 6, where it shows the image of God's power working at the Red Sea. Thy right hand, O Lord, they say in this song that they're singing, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed the enemy in, uh, in pieces the enemy. So God, they say, we, we, we had Pharaoh, you delivered us out with a mighty hand, but you didn't even leave it there. You destroyed these enemies. And he said to Moses, these enemies that are chasing you, you will never see again after this day. Now that sounds like assurance, folks. And what Jesus, what he's pointing to is this is the same language of right hand. The enemies that we face, death, hell, and the grave, were conquered in such a way we don't have to ever worry about them again. We have assurance that God, in the man Jesus, conquered our enemies, all right? Yes, that's why he said on the cross when he died, not for his own guilt, but in our place, it is finished. The enemy's defeated, folks. You don't have to worry about hell. You don't have to worry about devil. The devil, the sin issue is, uh, you have the power of the Holy Ghost. Listen, the thing you have to deal with is whether or not you're going to be a part of this victory. What Peter is saying is, look, it's done. It's over. The Messiah is here. Everything is set in motion. All you have to do is to decide to be a part of this victory. 
And we're not waiting for a victory later. We got victory right now in the church because we're a part of this conquering hero, this conquering Messiah. All right. It looks like the donuts are here. We'll do one verse and then we'll take a break. Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Because of his sacrifice and resurrection, he rules. Because he was who he was, he rules. All right? So Israel was to know that Christ is the one David had in mind with this prophecy. He wasn't speaking of himself. All the right-hand power talk is not about Israel's earthly kingdom, right? He's saying Jesus is your Messiah, and you crucified him. But now he's Lord and Christ. And what they were in danger of seeing Christ as is just another prophet, just another person, just another man among men. They were doubting even that Jesus could be the Messiah. How could he be a Messiah? How could he be both Lord and Christ? He'd been crucified like a common criminal, right? And the Old Testament even said, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So he was cursed by God. And he was cursed by God for our sake. He endured the cross despising the shame. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him, that he could shed abroad to us the power of his spirit and work with us in a way that he couldn't unless his holiness and justice was satisfied. Right? The resurrection, in fact, then proved that Jesus is both our master and our savior. He's the only way, folks. He's the only way. If you're going to come to God, you better come through the Son. Because he's the only way to get to him. If you want to satisfy the holiness and justice of God, look, you're, you're, our righteousness is as filthy rags. We can't do it. But we're hid in Christ. We can approach the throne of grace to obtain, boldly approach God to obtain help in the uh, time of need. Why? Because right now, who we are through the baptism of the Spirit has located us in a position of favor. We are joint heirs with Christ. Everything he gets, we get. Now, if that doesn't make you thankful for the power of the Holy Ghost, I don't know what. All right, well, let's have some donuts. Take a break and grab some donuts. Point of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is what it is. Peter's sermon is about God working in the last days. What is he doing? He's teaching a history lesson from Pentecost to the day of the Lord. How many knows that history is going somewhere? We're not just, it's, it's God's in control of history, and history has an ultimate end. And what he's saying is, you need to pay attention to where history is going, all right? So he's saying, make sure you pay attention to the signs. He's, he's got these Jewish people up. He says, you've already missed God at work in Christ. So make sure you don't miss God at work in the church as well, lest it be too late for you. That's why he pointed to all the prophecies of the end time, of the day of the Lord. He says, if you miss this, it will be blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun turning to darkness, the moon to blood, and all of this language to point to the day of the Lord. So he's putting them on the spot. You have been so blind, he says, that you've missed it. Can you imagine a preacher preaching that? You missed the doorway to heaven. And then he paints this picture of hell. Aren't you glad somebody had the courage to tell you you need to be saved? 
There is, there's a heaven and a hell, as Brother Golder says, Brother Mooney quotes him quite often, and you're not smart enough to miss them both. That's not mean-spirited. That's the truth. Someone that loves you enough to tell you what the truth is. He's saying, I'm putting you on the spot. They stand convicted of both blindness to God's will and the murder of their Messiah. What does he say? They're convicted. They're saying, is there any way we can fix this? That's a great point for a preacher to step in. He's going to say in Acts 2, 38 and 9, this is how you fix it. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's how you fix it. That's the message. You missed your Messiah. You, you missed God's work. You murdered your Messiah. But if you want to fix it, all you have to do is to identify with him through repentance, baptism, and the filling of the Holy Ghost. So if you're here this morning and you don't know uh, Jesus as Messiah, then you need, to, you need to get out of hell free card because you can't buy that yourself. You know, it's kind of crass, isn't it? We don't hear too many preachers talk about hell. But, you know, we need a good turn or burn campaign. We need to look people in the eye and say, listen, there is, there is a hell that's created for the devil and all of his imps, and it's not for you. If you will simply come, I know, and you preach to them, they know they're sinners, folks. You don't have to tell them they're sinners. What you need to tell them is God can make your life better. God can redeem you and make you part of the children of God. How do you do that? It's the message that Pentecostals have preached since the day of Pentecost. And I don't know about you, but, you know, if you can't stand up and let me preach that in your church, then you're not a part of God's kingdom. If I can't preach that message, we're baptized by one spirit into one body. It's not two bodies. There's only one message. God, we thank you that uh, you made the way of salvation. We thank you, God, that you've invited us to repent. You made a way through your sacrifice, Lord, that we could identify with your death by dying ourselves in repentance. We thank you, Lord, that we're buried with you in baptism. Your name's called over us, God. You take possession of us. You, re you wash away our sins, God, where we're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord. And then you gave us your spirit, the power to conquer this whole world. We've escaped the corruption of the world through lust, God, by the baptism of the spirit. We give you praise, we give you thanks, and we give you honor for it in Jesus' name.